everyone. Thank you so much for coming over to listen today. I'm Sue Van Rees, nutritional therapist, food psychology specialist, author, and founder of Boulder Nutrition here in Boulder, Colorado. For the next few weeks, I'll be hosting a very special edition of the podcast called The Soul Food Sessions. The Soul Food Sessions are bite-sized morsels of wisdom from our guest teachers, little tasters here and there from me, and some sweet shares from my past participants of my online program, The Yoga of Eating, a six-month course and community to heal your relationship to food and your body. Registration is now open. Over the next few weeks, you will get mini appetizer plates to sample through the soul food sessions. We have amazing content coming for you. And if you like these little tasters and teachings, I guarantee that you are going to love the Yoga of Eating online course and community. The Yoga of Eating begins this January. This is my most complete body of work combining nutritional therapy, food psychology, yoga, meditation, embodiment practices, recipes, resources, and our wonderful group of online guest teachers. You can find out more at theyogaofeating.com. I could not be more excited to share with you this very special edition of Satiate, and I am also incredibly grateful to be offering you some of the most potent wisdom from experts all over the country. So pour yourself a cup of something wintry and warming, settle into your favorite spot, and enjoy this soul food session. Welcome, and to all of our listeners, I'm really excited today to host a really great interview on the Boulder Nutrition podcast, Satiate, and today we have a great guest teacher named Kimberly Ann Johnson. Welcome. Thank you for taking time to join us today. Thanks for having me, Sue. I didn't know that the title was Satiate. I love that. I love that word. Oh, thank you. Yes. Me too. It has so many different meanings and metaphors. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. And so I'm really excited. We've known each other for probably 15 or more years. I'm just trying to go back to the early. Yeah, I think like days. 20. Yeah, maybe yeah. at the yoga workshop. And it's great to have been following you through all of those years, and to now have you here, but also to just see how amazing and expansive your work has become in the world. So I'm really excited for you, and I'm really excited that you were able to join us. I know that your work has a lot to offer with some of the clients and listeners today, so I really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks. Um, I look forward to this. Great. So I thought I could start today with just a little intro introduction for those listeners so they know a little bit more about you, and then we can dig into some of the juicy topics that I'm excited to talk about with you. Um, Great. So Kimberly Ann Johnson was a yoga teacher and body worker whose body and life was permanently altered when she sustained an injury during childbirth. Determined not to get a full pelvic floor reconstructive surgery, she traveled the world learning about postpartum practices. After healing herself, she became a doula, a sex logical body worker, 
and somatic experiencing practitioner so that she could help women through this important and overlooked phase of development that is the postpartum period. As is taught in many traditional cultures, she believes that when nurtured and taken care of properly, women can emerge from this rites of passage stronger, more whole, and with more access to their power. She believes the same is true relationship with the right tools, marriages, and partnerships can be more connected and robust to after children. For this reason, she wrote her first book called The Fourth Trimester, which is a postpartum guide to healing your body, balancing your emotions, and restoring your vitality, um, which was published by Shambhala Press. And to learn more about that and um, how to have a radiant postpartum experience and how to do a decent kegel, you can go to her online home at magamama.com, and I'll definitely link that in the notes of the podcast. She's the co-founder of the School for Postpartum Care with her mentor, Ellen Seed, where they train professionals to do this healing work and heal from painful sex, birth injuries, and genital trauma. And her most outstanding accomplishment is being a single mom of her daughter, Cecilia. Great. So, one of the things I love about your website, which I just thought would be fun to kind of introduce you through, is um, the page that talks about you and all of your credentials and your work says, hi, I'm a vagina practitioner. Pra- yeah, I'm a <laughs> vagina practitioner. And, yes. um, and I know you've used the word sexological practitioner, and I know you obviously work with a lot of different kinds of trauma in the body related to childbirth, sex, and all of these things. But can you tell us a little bit about vagina practor? Yes. So the trainings that I have are sexological body work, which is its own kind of training. And then I'm also a somatic experiencing trauma resolution practitioner. And I just want to put that up front because there's the, the word trauma is such a hot button these days, and so many people are talking about they're trauma-informed, they're trauma-sensitive, they're, you know, there's so many different sort of it's becoming like a hierarchy of trauma training, um, but just so that people have a background and know where I come from. So I was a yoga teacher, and I'm also a rolfer, which is a kind of structural body work. And the, one of the original rolfers went on to develop somatic experiencing. Uh, his name is Peter Levine. He learned mm-hmm. body reading from Dr. Rolf and also myofascial work. So it's, I'm kind of like in that lineage stream, and sexological body work is a different certification that's specifically about working with sexuality, working with the genitals, uh, including our pelvis and our genitals and the rest of our body as we're working with someone. And a vagina practitioner is something that um, someone just said to me while I was working with them. At the end of the session, she just looked at me and she goes, you know, you're kind of like a vagina practitioner, which just cracked both of us up. And then I thought, well, that's actually for, because it's very hard for people to understand what I do because it's outside of paradigms that most people are used to because I'm not a massage therapist. I'm not a physical therapist. I'm not a talk therapist. Uh, I do internal pelvic floor work, but even when I say that, most people already are kind of floating off into the ethers. So I, I put on gloves, and of course I talk to someone they, when they arrive, and we may or may not get to 
the pelvis in the work, depending on what someone's past history is and what their relationship with touch is and all of the things. But I specialize in helping women recover from incontinence, prolapse, painful sex, scar tissue, uh, remediation, gynecological surgery. And in order to do that, I work vaginally and anally with gloves on and with full consent, of course. So the vagina practice was sort of a way, a fun way to make, uh, make up something light that tends to feel so heavy uh, and talk about the structural and therapeutic aspect of it. I love it. It, it definitely um, helps me understand as well. And even though you and mm-hmm. I have some very similar backgrounds, such as Rolfing and yoga, um, you know, I, it really helps me to understand that there's actually like physical manipulation that's possible in the pelvic region for women to help recover from trauma, as well as I'm sure many other tools that you use. Um, yeah, and not only possible, but actually, especially from a structural point of view, there's muscles and fascial networks that you can't get to externally, namely like right. some of the obturators. So for people that are having chronic SI pain or, you know, post-cesarean pain, things that can be worked with in other ways. When I started doing internal work is when I realized how efficient it was and how I could help women in one session with something that had been hurting them for three years or 10 years. But it's just a part of our body that's not attended to because of shame, because of, you know, for most of us, if we go to the doctor like the OBGYN and they're going to give us a pelvic exam, they're going to try to make it as fast as possible because it's fast. They think, well, fast is painless. And also they're going to try not to touch your external genitalia. So they're going to try not to touch your vulva, not to touch your clit because they don't want even the like possibility that anything could be construed as sexual. But at the same time, that teaches our bodies, which female bodies generally don't like to just be penetrated without any contact is teaching us to be, to separate these things. So a lot of my work is just humanizing the contact and repairing some of those earlier patterns that just kind of get set in place, set in place unconsciously based on what each care provider's history is and their own shame matrix and what they see their own role as being. So it's really revolutionary as far as what traditionally most of us are taught and most of us have experienced as far as in the medical community. Yeah, it really is. It's it's pretty po- profound. Almost everyone that I work with just is like, oh my gosh, I wish every one woman could have this. You know, I wish every woman had this as their baseline before they got any kind of examination. Or because I'm also in the process teaching women how to talk about what they what feels good to them, what doesn't feel good to them. Not even in a pleasure sense just in like a spatial orientation. Where do you want to be in the room? How far away from me do you want me to be? I'm really following their body's timing and following uh, their own rhythm that we're both listening for. And you can only Mm -hmm. imagine how different everything would be if we were practicing that in, in, in places of authority. Then when it comes to birth, it wouldn't be so challenging because we would have already practiced that. Exactly. Wonderful. 
So one thing I'm really curious about, and I know we've talked about this conversation before, that this, you know, aspect of women in trauma, which I'm sure you see a lot of and is one of your specialties, also plays out in lots of different areas of our lives. Um, For example, I just was part of your recent webinar on money and the nervous system and how some of our trauma can play out in our relationship to money. And that was really Mm -hmm. profound, and I loved I loved some of the tools and some of the ways that you were able to explain that in a way that really made sense. And as you know, my work primarily is around women and food and body, body image. And um, the Yoga of Eating program is um, designed to help women move through some of their old patterns, trauma, and to look at new ways of rewiring themselves around food and body so that they can have a healthier, happier, less um, burdenous relationship with both food and body. And I'm curious as to how your perspective around trauma can govern the many aspects of our life and then specifically, you know, food and body image that is so challenging in the world today with social media, with the many different um, ways that we have shut down around um, food and our bodies, around self-care, around nourishment, and how trauma can play out in some of those aspects um, for women. So I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. So I like to talk about trauma in a couple of different ways, and one of them is I make this distinction between capital T trauma and lowercase t trauma. Because I find that trauma, and as I said earlier, it's become this big buzzword. And, you know, Bessel van der Kolk's book, Body Keeps the Score, it's on like the top 10 backlist of the New York Times bestsellers for paperbacks for like 75 weeks. So we're all kind of collectively waking up to this idea that trauma happens and that a lot of us have experienced it. To me, a capital T trauma are the things that we think of, like a car accident, uh, a sexual assault, our house burns down, a death, uh, things that we would all agree that for most people, they're challenging circumstances. Uh, The little T trauma is the fact that we don't really have a flip side word. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, the opposite of trauma is resilience or the opposite of trauma is healing. But the fact of the matter is, is that we're all human and we're all very uniquely designed with very intricate patterns of how our nervous system works. This, the whole study of trauma came about by watching wild animals and seeing that animals, wild animals in the wild, so not wild animals in a zoo, domesticated or uh, pet truly wild animals don't experience trauma. So the neuroscientists were like, oh, that's interesting. And the behavioral people, like, why is that? And it's because wild animals, their system goes through a whole circuitry when they're experiencing activation or charge, let's say, on a hunt. But as humans... Because we have another layer of our nervous system, which is called the social nervous system, and it's the most recently evolved, and it 
evolved for maternal bonding, we have an element of shame that often, and, and shame exists without the social nervous system as well, but it's a layer that goes over those patterns. So if you imagine that you're just walking down the street and then you trip, most people, and, and say you actually fall, most people like try to get up as fast as they possibly can, look around, brush themselves off, hope nobody saw them, and just keep going. And they might be a block, block ahead of themselves before they really realize, like, am I hurt? What just happened there? Did I trip over something? This just happened to me the other day. I was in Holland, and I went from a room that was really warm. I opened a door, and outside it was really cool, like not cool, actually cold. And then I started mm-hmm. to walk down a staircase, and three steps down, I slipped, and I, I was wearing socks, and so I almost fell. I fell down three steps, but I caught myself. But mm-hmm. when I stood back up and I took my time and I looked around and people were wondering, you know, usually you're just like, I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. You know, you don't want anyone else to worry about you. You don't mm-hmm. actually have the time to go through the whole process of what the experience was. And that's a very small example, like tripping. But it happens all the time with incomplete cycles. And with women, we have more cycles. So we have more cycles to be interrupted, right? So uh, there are some ways that our nervous systems are disproportionately affected because of the social environment, because of estrogen, and then also because of the way that we, uh, most women have menstrual cycles and have you know, other kinds of cycles, miscarriages, abortions. Uh, so in a way, we're, we just have more opportunities to thwart those cycles. So the reason I'm explaining that is because most people either listening are either like, oh, my God, I'm so traumatized, or I'm, I have no trauma. We usually over-identify or under-identify with it. And what's important mm-hmm. to me for people to understand is that we all experience traumas. And if you think of them as little T's, then it's manageable because we are built to be able to transmute, transmute these traumas. And also, uh, when we do transmute them, usually it turns into a kind of power or a kind of wisdom. So mm-hmm. because it's an inherent part, you know, that it happens in relationships, it happens with money, it happens in parenting, it happens in the way that we were born. It happens in the way that we birth. Uh, it extends to every aspect of our life because our nervous system is the most fundamental. So it's like our big operating board. And so it determines so many of the ways that we interface with whatever aspect of ourself or aspect of the environment that we are coming into contact with. If you watch an animal, for example, depending on whether it's the predator or the prey, in both of the roles, if the prey freezes, when it's coming out of freeze, if it gets left alone, it will shake. And the same Mm -hmm. is true of the predator. If the predator catches, like say the lion gets the gazelle, when it knows that the gazelle is dead, the first thing the lioness does is yawn really big and then go Mm -hmm. through a shake and then starts to bite and consume. So there's physical ways to release the charge in the nervous system. And what happens is because a lot of us don't know these things, 
our body might have the instinct to do them and we secure it or at an earlier phase in our life we couldn't for whatever reason because when you're kids you when you're a kid you can't you know say everything that you want to say and fight every time you want to fight or get so you can't get away all the time Uh, we Mm -hmm. just have those patterns in our body so for women the social nervous system which is our first layer of the nervous system where we detect whether or not we're safe so the social nervous system is the most recently evolved we share it with primates it's mostly through our eyes our head it's it's how we decide if someone is our ally or our enemy Mm -hmm. as women we have on average more estrogen than men estrogen is a bonding hormone therefore we are looking in general much more for approval and because as women if you're thinking about us on the plane if there was an enemy that was going to come towards us we would pull the children and the other women closer together so this tendency of if there's some kind of a danger or perceived danger to move towards the threat or to move towards each other is a nervous system response but on the unhealthy side which shows up a lot with food and which shows up a lot with body image and comparison is that we're not just self-referential we're actually looking and comparing with everyone else and i would say that that is disproportional for women that's because the nerve that that layer of the nervous system evolved from maternal bonding not for paternal bonding so it's it's almost like it was a female design system that of course we all need to survive because there's all genders of babies uh so i feel that's important because otherwise when we don't understand how the nervous system works it turns it tends to be internalized where we blame ourselves and we feel like if we just had more discipline or if we just weren't so worried about everyone else and we get hard on ourselves rather than recognizing oh there's a perceived threat here and when i'm already in a state then i'm more likely to see competition i'm more likely to compare i'm more likely to uh solicit other people's opinions mm-hmm. so in a sense that can easily take us out of really listening to our own bodies or our own cues um maybe even you know numb us a little bit from that part of ourselves so that we're more focused on the external rather than you know what we actually need to be satiated or nourished or taken care of or um you know biochemically sound eating for example if if you feel unsafe in in your environment or in yourself then you're more likely to be outsourcing what you sh- what you think you should be doing or what works for someone else it's taken me so long to it it it's almost like you have to develop an oppositional personality in a way of like i'm not going to that's good for that person i don't know if it's good for me you know and we that's why i love chinese medicine because i feel like it's always a grounded place to come back to i remember actually we a uh acupuncturist i think we had in common as a friend dan you saw always right. say like you don't need to fast like just eat in moderation at each meal and it's like 
this is a, tra a trauma tendency is an all or nothing tendency. It's a black and white thinking. If in a trauma mindset, you don't have nuance. But if you really think about it, it's like, yeah, when I was having that reaction, like things are wrong, so I should just go on a fast and da-da-da-da-da. It's like, well, would that really be more useful or would it just be useful to walk the middle path? Mm -hmm. To eat the things mm -hmm. that I know are good for me. I really, I really like what you just said about a trauma tendency is like all or nothing extremes. Um, that, that's a really juicy nugget right there because I think sometimes we think more extreme is better because of our, you know, high performance, you know, motivation around sports or our intensity. We, we, we tend to go to the extremes to sort of try to, you know, um, accelerate healing or accelerate results or what have you. And meanwhile, it can be very detrimental to not only our bodies, but also in a way exacerbating the, the, the you know, the original, maybe the original wound, the original trauma in a sense. Definitely. And it's not teaching us about because essentially another thing that trauma does is it puts us, and it's not just trauma actually, it's just if, if we allow for a lot of input from our environment, we live in a time where there's a lot of stimulus. The news is about what's wrong. You know, everyone's concerned about these, the, our environment and, and real, real concerns. But the, the thing is, is that if we come with an activated state, then we're more likely to see things that are going wrong. And with that what's wrong attention, everything around us can then become a problem. So mm -hmm. I think eating and food is so elemental because essentially it's about pleasure. And when we talk about all of these diets and nutritional fads, it's really most of them are about giving things up. They're not about what you can have. They're what you can't have. I mean, I'm like, I always, I think a long time ago, I even wrote an article about it. It's just like, I just don't care what you eat, you don't eat, you know? Like, I don't want to talk to people about what they don't eat. I, I'm happy to talk to people about what they do eat, like what do you like to eat, but it's so boring to sit around and talk about, with everyone about what you can't have. And, <laughs> yeah, totally. you know, it's like such a downer. And there's so much, no matter where you are, I know some people are on really strict things because of their health and all of that there's still pleasure is the biggest support we can have in healing trauma. Mm, it becomes a bit of a chicken and egg because when you're feeling so activated, it's hard to access pleasure, but without accessing pleasure, we can't heal trauma. So Beautiful. it's like, if somebody was just really joyful eating a food that was like, quote, unquote, terrible, you know, you see, I think the World Health Organization in the last year or two, the healthiest country is Spain. They eat churros and chocolate for breakfast. And people smoke <laughs> and drink wine all the time. You know, it's like, I don't yep. look at that cuisine and go, wow, that's a healthy cuisine, like paella. I mean, it's, but it's like, why? Because they eat together and they nap. 
and they enjoy yeah. being around other people with food, and there's not like this big fucking head trip about what you should and shouldn't eat all the time. It feels so good to when you can tell that other people aren't noticing what you're eating and keeping track. And when I first moved to Brazil, I remember that uh, both my daughter's father and other people in our friends would always say, call me my, call me my, eat more, eat more. And I thought, wow, that's like words my mom's never said to me, like eat more. Like that's just not something Americans really say, uh, at least the ones that I grew up with. So it was so so relieving for someone to just be like, have more, have more, enjoy it, you know, eat another plate full of food. So, you know, just basically the important thing is that any single, any single thing in our life is an entry point to healing. So any single place where you can bring a little bit more pleasure where you can let yourself enjoy. That's why I love the word satiate because it goes equally for, for eating as for sexuality. When you can really let yourself feel like this is enough and I'm satisfied and I'm deeply satiated by this and finding pleasure in that. Otherwise, we get in the, I can't tell when I'm satiated so I don't even trust myself with food or money or sex. Or I am always in excess, and so I never feel that feeling of satiation. And essentially, I think that that's what we're doing. We're, like, learning how to trust ourselves and trust our body. And if we've experienced trauma, and, you know, a lot of people have experienced a lot of trauma, then it's harder to feel that trust in our body and in our body signals. So any way, any, any place is an entry point for redeveloping or increasing our sense of self-trust. Thank you so much for coming over to listen to this very special edition of Satiate, the Soul Food Sessions. These podcasts are designed to give you little tasters and appetizers of the upcoming Yoga of Eating online course and community. Registration is currently open. You can access all of the details for registration and more about our dynamic group of guest teachers and all the different aspects of the program, including nutritional therapy, food psychology, yoga, meditation, reflective resources, and nourishing recipes by going over to theyogaofeating.com. I would love to welcome you into this year's brilliant circle of women, and I'm excited to dive in with each of you in the inner world of making a lasting change in our relationship to food and body. This is definitely my most complete and passionate body of work and has supported thousands of women around the world in making a lasting change and creating more health and happiness in their lives. I hope to see you and talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening today.